Genesis 3 chapter, excuse me, Genesis chapter 3 verses uh, 1 and following here will be a main focus of the sermon this morning, but I'd like to take a few minutes and uh, get there first. A number of you are aware that in Canada there was a piece of legislation that was passed uh, without discussion, unanimously, uh, this bill made it, a, made it uh, illegal to do conversion therapy on those that are homosexual and, and would uh, wish to hear uh, how to perhaps transition from that. Uh, that would include biblical counseling, as is understood. And the, some of these pieces of legislation have also cropped up in localities and states in our own country. So John MacArthur, pastor at Grace Community Church, uh, wrote an open letter to pastors. He said, I'm eager to support our Canadian brothers and preach on biblical sexual morality on January 16, and I invite you as a faithful pastor to do the same. Our united stand will put the Canadian and the U.S. governments on notice that they have attacked the Word of God. We are all well aware of the evil power and destructive influence of the homosexual and transgender ideology. Our government is bent on not only normalizing this perversion, but also legalizing it and furthermore, criminalizing opposition to it. This is a short piece of John MacArthur's letter. And so, as are many, many other others who are proclaiming God's Word today, they are focusing on biblical human sexuality, and so that is my intent today. And I'd like to break that up really into four, four parts. So this is um, another one of those uh, multi-passage sermons here, but Four, four ideas. First of all, what is God's standard regarding human sexuality? What is the standard? Um, what, what has God said about human sexuality? What has He kept for us? What has He blessed us with? What has He graciously created for us? These are ways that I think we should think about. Uh, sometimes when we think about what is God's law that, that uh, may give to us negative connotations, but it's important for us to see that God's law for us uh, should, I think, appropriately be illustrated not as a prison cell, but as a playground fence, right? So God's law is the fence around the playground. We play on all of the playground, and He has put a fence there for us for what? To keep us from the good stuff? No. No, to keep the bad stuff from us. That's the idea with the fence, right? So that's an appropriate illustration for the law of God. So again, first of all, what is God's standard regarding human sexuality? Secondly, what do we do regarding sexual immorality? What is our response individually? Of course, uh, there could be more said of that. Thirdly, declaring what is evil to be good is an abomination. Declaring what is evil to be good is an abomination. We'll look at that. We'll look at the ramifications of saying that something which is in fact evil is good. And then fourthly, this idea that to approve of sexual immorality and reject God's Word is simply following the same pattern our first parents did in the fall in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1-7. through So that was just read in your hearing. There have been a number of passages read. The passage that we had for responsive reading was also an important passage for these ideas that hopefully uh, we'll get through 
today. So the first idea, what is God's standard regarding human sexuality? The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 21, this is the way, walk in it. This is the way, walk in it. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. Genesis 5, 2, male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. I'm hoping that a few things will echo in your mind after our service today. And one of those ideas is simply this. I pray that God will have echo in your mind this simple phrase, male and female, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That's it. Binary. Male and female. A picture of completion and fullness, providing the full orb of gifts, distinctions, perspectives, capabilities, and companionship. But Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 8, places this on notice. The Bible says, All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. Or the ear with hearing. Now what is the wise man saying? God is saying through Solomon that, look, God has made perfect things. Consider the eye. But we of all people are so ungrateful that we're not satisfied that our eyes see. We're not satisfied that the ear hears, right? And so the same is true uh, of what God has created. Male and female, He created them. Let this echo in our head. Now, besides the worldwide flood, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is one of the most powerful historic displays of God's judgment. Think of it. When God came to Abram in Genesis chapter 18, as there was an anticipation of Sodom and Gomorrah, it was to be for Abram and all those around him to be this this everlasting declaration and and an illustration of what happens, particularly in the area of this degradation of sexual immorality. Genesis chapter 19, verse 5. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Now, this is no hidden implication. The idea here is that they were entering into homosexual activities with them. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 18, And you shall not commit adultery. Now, this is the clear word of God. This, these, uh, these fence, if you will, uh, the standard, God's standard for human sexuality. Associated with this command in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 18, this command uh, of to not commit adultery, the Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. 
The Lord Jesus Christ is looking into one of these aspects of God's standard regarding human sexuality, and that is the standard of marriage. This idea of marriage that's displayed in, in, uh, in the law of God, in the seventh commandment, uh, as, I, as I read here in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 18. The Lord Jesus begins, as He addresses this idea, with something that is somewhat common uh, in the responses of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is this simple phrase, Have you not read? In other words, God's thoughts on this subject are publicly declared in the Word of God. And you are revealing that you don't know what He said. And since you don't know what He said, you don't know what to do or how to understand even the seventh commandment of God. Thou shalt not commit adultery. It isn't a mere command. It's not, it's not, some, sort of, it's not some sort of capricious declaration. And we'll go on to understand the Apostle Paul as he describes for us sexual sin. There, there is a distinction uh, that the Apostle Paul shows us in his letter to the 1 Corinthians. The Lord Jesus, again, referring not only to the defining purposes that God made male and female, but that marriage brings a man and a woman into a union that's very unique and that intermingles more than the physical. For them to divorce is not as easy as they simply no longer live together. Yes, they can part ways, but there remains an attachment. And this is addressed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 6. The depravity of sexual perversion receives the most attention from the Apostle Paul as he describes the free fall of continuing to reject God and God's response in giving them over to further degradation. It's synonymous with rejecting God and His authority. So again, we're looking at the first aspect of this idea of biblical human sexuality, and that is this idea of what is God's standard regarding human sexuality. And in Romans chapter 1, the Bible says, beginning in verse 23, "...and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves." Now, this is breaking the first commandment. This isn't worshiping God in images, it's worshiping images. Right? It's worshiping the things that God has created or images of them. And secondly, in Romans chapter 1, verse 26 through 27, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Eventually, God, God gives over these individuals to self-destruction and the depths of sexual immorality seems to be the very worst of this. Cultural degradation seems to find its bottom in, in this intensification of sexual perversion. And we see that in Romans chapter 1. Again, the idea here isn't that somehow we single out uh, this idea of sexual sin and we, we feel like maybe we're okay because we're not committing sexual sin. That's not the idea here. But the idea that the Apostle Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ and all of the Scriptures are trying to help us understand is that there is something unique and beyond the physical when we commit sexual perversion. 
That's the idea. It's beyond the physical. The Lord Jesus Christ is addressing this in this passage in Matthew. Two people that are married and involve themselves in the completion of marriage, in the sexual aspect of marriage, if they just leave, it's not as if everything just goes back to like it was. It doesn't. And even for those people who involve themselves sexually before they were married, it goes without saying that that will continue to impact you negatively until we reach the gates of heaven. The Apostle Paul is addressing this idea. Now, can the Lord sanctify us and redeem us? Can He use those? Since Yes, that is His very intent to use those, to correct us, to shape us, to help us to be those that help others to... to uh, to not do the sins that we did, but nonetheless we see that they continue to to impact us. First Corinthians chapter six verse nine. Or do you not know that the right the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. The Apostle Paul goes on in 1 Timothy chapter 1, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Jude 1, seven. just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, so one of the things that would be important here as we understand what is God's standard for sexual morality? What is the biblical standard for sexual relationships between men and women? Well, we understand that, of course, the idea is that, is that the physical act of marriage, and we call it that for a reason, uh, this, the, the aspect of the physical act of marriage uh, is set aside by God and given to mankind as a gift only to be enjoyed by a husband and a wife. That's the idea. That's God's goodness for us. Everything regarding sexuality and the committing of the physical act of marriage is outside of the bounds. It's outside of the bounds. and, And it will be and continue to degrade us if we enter into that. And it will negatively impact us, our relationships with others, and our relationship to God. What has God said? And one of the things that the Apostle Paul is getting at here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when we look at these folks that will not inherit the kingdom, is that a persistent insistence on rejecting the ways of God indicate that we, we are not attached savingly to Christ. We cannot continue in such degradation and yet be associated with a holy God. The two things are incompatible. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. This, among other things, is a check of our own relationship to Christ. Can I maintain a conscience that will allow me to continue to enter into such degradation? And the answer is no. And so what it does is it it reveals to those who continue in this and, and cannot and will not turn from it that they, in fact, are not uh, are, are, are very, very likely not associated savingly with the Lord Jesus Christ because it's incompatible. 
Now, secondly, what do we do regarding sexual immorality? Well, the Apostle Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 6.18, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Matthew Henry says, Other vices may be conquered in fight, this only by flight. Many other sins may be conquered by fight, this only in flight. Fee. Have the habit, flee. Have the habit of fleeing without parley or delay. Fornication violates Christ's rights in our body and also ruins the body itself. Sexual sin is singled out here over against every other sin, as it is described as sinning against one's own body. That body happens to be, as the Apostle Paul goes on to say, the temple of the Holy Spirit. The temple of the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus Christ, what did He say to the Samaritan woman? No longer will you worship on this mountain, but you'll worship in body, or rather in spirit and truth. In spirit and truth. This is the idea. And this would be an end note uh, for this sermon, which I, which perhaps I will enter into. But nonetheless, we need to think about our relationships in general. Our culture has uh, strangely persuaded itself that the very depth of human relationship is the act of sex. But I would ask you a question. What did the Lord Jesus say, this is love? Because we hear today, we hear today that, uh, that, that, that we should be able to love one another. We should be able to love who we want to, right? But the pinnacle of human love isn't the act of sex. And the Apostle Paul is addressing this idea. There's something deeper going on when we commit sexual immorality. Something different than gluttony or drunkenness, or thievery. Those are horrible things, and they're life-dominating sins. Every one of them is. But the Apostle Paul is saying, and I don't understand it, that there's something different. There's something even more degrading. There's something even more negative. There's something that even more so negatively impacts our relationship with one another and with the triune God when this happens. So that's the second idea. What do we do regarding sexual immorality? We flee. We flee. We don't try to manage it. We don't try to, we don't try to hide it. We run from it. We run from it. Now children, hopefully you've not encountered images that you shouldn't see, but I can assure you that you will see them unawares. They will pop up. You will notice them. Not even looking for them. You shouldn't look for them, ever. But they may pop up, and what should you do? You should run away from that. You should flee from that. You should look the other way. You should train your eyes to look away from things that you shouldn't look at. In the Scriptures, 
in the Scriptures, the, the standard for maturity was simply this, and it was applied to the Lord Jesus Christ and His humanity as well as everybody else. Can He reject the bad and choose the good? Can He reject the bad and choose the good? Can I choose the good? Children, if you're not choosing good and rejecting bad every single day, something is going wrong in your life. If you go through a day and you've not seen things that you shouldn't, that rather that you should reject, or thought thoughts that you should reject, or been encouraged to do something that you should reject, then likely you haven't woken up that day. Okay? Because there's going to be thoughts that come into our heads that we shouldn't do. And we need to reject those, right? We need to fight against those and flee from them, right? And as we get older, as we gain more independence, there's going to be images that may pop up or, or things that we may be inclined to want to see or things that we want, might want to do that we shouldn't do. And we have to reject those things. We have to think about what should I not do? What should I do, right? And so the Scriptures make much of those ideas. Now, the third idea that's important here is simply this idea that to declare what is evil, good, is an abomination. To declare that something that is in fact evil is good is an abomination. Now, children, this word abomination, it, it's a word that we don't really use very much, right? But it's like, it's like a word that means the very worst kind of thing that can happen. Abomination. Abomination. It's like the worst thing. It's the horrible judgment of God. When I say that that something that something that God declares bad, when I call it good, God says that's an abomination. That's wicked. That's evil. It's evil to do that. Now, what does our culture say, though? Well, our culture uh, may say that it's an expression of spiritual maturity. That it's an expression of graciousness, of mercy for me to say, oh, that's fine, do that. But God calls that an abomination. Now, I'd like to, as we consider this third point, declaring what is evil to be good, I'd like to look very, very briefly just at some matters of our own country, of the United States. And again, it's very, very important for us to recognize that sexual sin is wrong because why? Because we have state laws that say it's wrong? No. Sexual sin is wrong uh, because God has declared it wrong, right? And, and we, we've already looked a little bit at our relationship uh, to the state last week. But nonetheless, I'd like to draw your attention to a few ideas. The first of all, John Adams, early on in our nation's history, said our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. Joseph Story, Associate Supreme Court Justice from 1811 to 1845, in his commentaries on the Constitution of the United States, said this, and I quote, One of the beautiful boasts of our municipal jurisprudence is that Christianity is part of the common law, from which it seeks the sanctification of its right, and by which it endeavors to regulate its doctrines. There never has been a period in which the common law did not recognize Christianity as laying at its foundations. Now, our nation and the laws of our nation were based initially on laws and on privileges that were given to us not by a nation, but by God. 
by God. These are, these are rights and privileges and laws that have been given to us by God. Our nation doesn't offer these to us. Our nation protects us in them so that we can enjoy them. That's a very, very important aspect of our Constitution. There's no difference in considering the bureaucratic despotism that prevents biblical worship and the insistence that sexual immorality be declared not only legal, but absolutely normal and good, thus being codified in our public schools, legislation, and court rulings, and to ultimately be defended by criminalizing those who would speak against it and then prosecuting them in courts of law. There is no difference between these two. This idea that we are prevented from biblical worship, right, which has just occurred in our nation. And secondly, there's no difference, as I say, between that and the insistence that sexual immorality be declared not only legal, but absolutely normal and good. We could look at our culture, and this is a very important aspect of our culture today, what we see this in transgenderism, in this homosexuality, in lesbianism, and this sort of thing. What we see, what we're beginning to see here, is a declaration, and the ending, or rather the opening up of marriage in Obergville versus Hodges on the 26th of June in 2015, that really wasn't ultimately about allowing homosexuals to marry. That was about destroying marriage. That was the idea. You see, and what we find is there's no... The, the idea here ultimately is not equality, right? It's, it's vengeance. That's the idea. Those that reject the ways of God, they, their ultimate intent is absolutely not equality. It is vengeance. And that's the desire. I encourage you to, to look that up. Consider those that are leading the way in the regard of lesbianism and transgenderism and these sorts of things. Make no mistake. There are very significant political forces going on here as well. Progressive authoritarian politics are absolutely insistent on the removal of all sexual taboos as a matter of policy, as a stepping stone to continuing the progressive godless agenda. An understanding of fallen man, which is underscored in our Constitution, is urgently important in politics and the progressive agenda that openly rejects that. Now this is important, and you should be encouraged by this. Our framers of our nation, those that wrote the Constitution, recognized and understood with open eyes that they had two options for a view of man. One option was an optimistic view. This idea that man could always get better. He was always progressing. Right? The other view was the tragic view of man that's displayed in the Bible. This idea that man has is, man is fallen. Man needs checks and balances. Man needs a God. Man needs laws outside of himself. This is the view that our framers took in our Constitution. There's no doubt about it. There's no denying it. Our Constitution was written in that way of a tragic view of man. Progressive politics rejects that view openly and intentionally. And so what follows is what we are seeing displayed before our very eyes. Chief Justice John Roberts, writing for the dissent, along with Antonin Scalia and Clarence Thomas in Obergefell versus Hodges on the 26th of June, 2015, he said this. And again, John Roberts' dissent 
in this, along with Thomas and Scalia. The fundamental right to marry does not include a right to make a state change its definition of marriage. And a state's decision to maintain the meaning of marriage that has persisted in every culture throughout human history can hardly be called irrational. Today, however, the court takes the extraordinary step of ordering every state to license and recognize same-sex marriage. For those who believe in a government of laws, not of men, the majority's approach is deeply disheartening. Supporters of same-sex marriage have achieved considerable success persuading their federal citizens citizens through the democratic process to adopt their view. That ends today. Five lawyers have, have closed the debate and enacted their own vision of marriage as a matter of constitutional law. Stealing this issue from the people will, for many, cast a cloud over same-sex marriage, making a dramatic social change that much more difficult to accept. Now, of course, we're persuaded that this is not even something that should be set forward for the people to decide, although, yes, they can, and perhaps that's a better idea than having this awful declaration made in court. But nonetheless, God has already said what His law is, what is the standard, that way that we should walk in, otherwise negative consequences will be ours. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, the Bible says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Proverbs seventeen fifteen: He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Malachi two seventeen: You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied Him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? When people come to ask what God says of the incredibly complex and destructive aspects of sexual immorality... For some, it certainly is an acknowledgement of their own experience that no matter how often they tell themselves what they do is good, their conscience, though severely compromised by sin, as the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, such were some of you, their conscience still rails against them. Now here's one of the, here's one of the very significant issues here, and this is one of the things that Francis Schaeffer did so well. When we say that sexual immorality is good. People who want to hear the truth will be totally confused by this idea when it's declared good. Why? Because, you see, their experience of life will never approve of sexual degradation. Their conscience is fighting against them. Their reality, the true reality of their lives is such that they recognize that this is wicked and they're caught in a trap. And what this legislation does is it closes the door to the things of God and to the Word of God in the very place where they need it. There's a remnant of God's law written on every human being's soul before one is given completely over to a seared conscience. Our conscience will inform us, nag us, condemn us of these things. And no matter how much we say it's okay, 
That's not the experience that people have in reality. They know it's not okay. This is the fourth point. To approve of sexual immorality and reject God's word is simply following the same pattern our first parents did in the fall in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. I am helped by Herman Bavink's theology in this regard. Now, children, I want to ask you a question. We, we read this earlier. I'm pretty sure we read this passage in Genesis 2. No, actually, we didn't. So let's think back to the Garden of Eden. Are you with me, children? We're back to the Garden of Eden. Okay. Now, there are two noteworthy trees in the Garden of Eden. Right? One of those trees is the tree of life. The second of those trees is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, when the serpent came and addressed Eve, he identified a tree that they shouldn't eat from, or that they were told that they shouldn't eat from. But I want to ask you a question. Which tree was it? Which tree were they not to eat from? Well, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat it, you shall surely die. They were not to eat of that tree. And you might ask, why? In that case, I would be glad that you asked. So let's consider this. What does the knowledge amount to in eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Because that's what Adam and Eve did. And God told them not to. Told them not to do that. Was it magic? Was there poison in the tree or the fruit? No. No. There's no reason for us to see that there was somehow poison in the tree. It was in the act of disobedience that drew them into the condition. And children, you may hear the phrase, our first parents, when you realize that you actually only have one set of parents, right? But, but when we say our first parents, we're talking about Adam and Eve, our first parents. Sometimes it comes up in the catechism or maybe in the confession. Now, there are a couple of ideas that are kind of floating around out there as far as what is it that occurred or what is this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the usual explanation is that they would gain empirical knowledge. Empirical knowledge is knowledge based on observation or experimentation. Empirical knowledge of good and evil. So again, this is, this is the idea. This is, this is uh, the idea that uh, may, many may believe, that when they ate of the fruit of this tree, they would gain, by observation and experience, this in-depth knowledge of good and evil. Yet this objection is rightly raised. The eating was to make them like God, as told to them by the serpent. Does it surprise you that the serpent lied? Does it surprise you that what the serpent said to Eve was not actually true? You will be how, how many of us are inclined to read that passage when the serpent says you will be like God? How many of us are actually drawn into this idea that oh, 
That's right. I would be like God somehow. Further, by eating, they lost knowledge of the good. How'd they do that? Because their knowledge of the good no longer resided only with the good. It became corrupted. Because now, what was true of them? They were sinners. And their understanding of the good just got yanked a little bit off. They lost the knowledge of good, not in merely doing a sinful thing, but thorough-growing depravity because the sin clouded their previous experience of perfection. Now, secondly, others came up with the idea that Genesis 3 relates to the development of humanity from an animal state to self-consciousness and reason. And they view the fall as the first foray, foray into the undertaking of reason, the beginning of moral life and culture, the happiest event in human history. Acknowledged by many people connect the knowledge of good and evil as a special kind of knowledge previously forbidden to humans. According to both of these views, the fall describes the passage of humanity from the state of rural simplicity to that of world-dominating culture. This is very important. There is no version of humanity which would have Adam and Eve properly lawfully, rightly, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was no version of that. This was not a tree that was set aside for them later. The tree of life was very much like communion. It was something that they could have entered into had they completed their probationary period of obedience, but they didn't. Was the tree of life magic? No, it wasn't. But it was a sacrament. It was something they could have enjoyed had they been rightly related to God. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was never, ever to be eaten by them. It stood as a declaration. This is God's law. And they died. The nature of the knowledge of good and evil in view is characterized by the fact that humans would be like God in a way not meant or intended by the idea of being in God's image. This is not development In other words, we say, oh, well, that's right, serpent. Uh, We're made in the image of God, so I guess we just get closer to that by eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? No, no, no. We get further away from that. We can never get closer to God by disobeying Him. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not and was not intended to be like the tree of life. The knowledge, of good, the knowledge of good and evil gained by the sin of eating of the fruit is not the knowledge of the useful and the harmful of the world and how to control it, but the supposed right capacity to distinguish good and evil on one's own. The issue in Genesis is whether humanity will develop in their dependence upon God or whether it will want to have dominion over the earth and seek its salvation in submission to God's commandment. Or violating that commandment, withdrawing from God's authority and law, it will want to stand on its own two feet, go its own way, and try its own luck. Now, this concept of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is critical for our thinking. Because here's what's happening in the garden, okay? When they ate of the tree, 
What they were saying is, is that I will decide and I will take to myself the privilege of declaring good and evil. Okay, I will take to myself the privilege of declaring good and evil. I will take to myself, I will use my wits, I will live, as Babing says, by my luck, and I will determine, based on how God has created me, now therefore, what is good and what is bad. God never, ever gave us that privilege. You're right. It is not ours. God has declared what is good. And God has declared what is bad. And it is our job, when we take to ourselves discernment, we are simply mimicking what it is that God has displayed in His Word. This is urgently important. When I, when I decide something is good or something is evil, how do I do that or how do I expect it will be done? And this also is associated with our understanding of how the Holy Spirit works in our life. How does the Holy Spirit work in our life? How does he work? He does work. He has a product. As the, the triune God had a product when they created the heavens and the earth, children. They had a product. They created something. How did they create it? Well, the Latin phrase that you may hear is ex nihilo. Ex nihilo. That idea, that means out of nothing. God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. He had no, nothing to create it from. That's, what, that's one of the aspects of making God who He is, is He can make stuff out of nothing. It's amazing. Obviously, we can't do that. Because we're just humans. When the Holy Spirit works in our lives, is it creation out of nothing? When He gives us understanding, is it ex nihilo? No. It isn't. He can... He has decided to limit Himself on that which we know. That's why it's so important for us to be a people of the Word of God. You see, we declare what's right and wrong simply because we're mimicking God. We're saying God has declared. That's a much better way to say this. God has said. The Lord Jesus said the same thing to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What has God said? Have you not read... When I determine for myself what is right and wrong, I have taken to myself a privilege that I cannot handle. I am not equipped for. God is equipped for that. He has done that already, and it's declared in His Word. When humanity fell, it got its own way. It made itself like God in demanding to determine good and evil on its own insight and judgment. This freedom from God however, did not bring them into true happiness, and indeed cannot. Man can be nothing less than ruined if he insists on living by his own rules. Now, here's an end note, really for another day here, but I think it, it would be helpful regarding human relationships. There are aspects of the current sexual perversion that have not been helped, particularly in the church, by an implication that only those that are married can enjoy real depth in a relationship. 
This reveals a poor and diminished view of biblical friendship as modeled, for instance, in the relationship between David and Jonathan or our Lord Jesus and the Apostle John and has robbed an entire culture of long-lasting relationships. Those called in their friendships... Excuse me, those called and given the gift of singleness can enjoy the fullness of redeemed humanity in their friendship with others. Our Lord Jesus, given the gift of singleness, was certainly a complete flourishing man. He is our example in this. Yes, most will and should marry, but we must stop viewing the call to singleness as an intermediate step to marriage, always holding over the head of the unmarried a sense of lack and unfulfillment. How many lives have been drawn to daily despair that could have been models of Christian flourishing and powerhouses for the gospel? This is an important place for us to explore as well. What is friendship? What is love? Right? These sorts of things uh, for us. So let's pray.